Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Technology, intelligence, data. Today we live in a world that's more connected and more transformative than ever before. Our devices are helping us complete tasks at a faster pace and with more precision than we could have ever imagined just a few years ago. But as our lives in the physical and digital worlds become more intertwined, how can we be sure that the algorithms are always on our side? And how can we safeguard technology to ensure it doesn't fall into the wrong hands? In this series, we'll be meeting the experts, the technologists, entrepreneurs and activists to ask them some of those important questions and to champion the people using tech as a force for good for all. This is Our Lives Plus Tech, a brand new podcast from Nominate Trust, the UK's leading investor of social tech and the people behind NT100, a global campaign that celebrates the people and organisations who are using tech to change the world for the better. I'm Ada Paris, and in today's podcast... There are many, many others who are working on AI, natural language processing, the neural networks, deep learning, very far out, much further out than we are. I've never been and will never be interested in technology for technology's sake, unless it has an application that is enabling people to lead fuller lives, then it's meaningless. So I have a great deal of respect for people that are at the leading edge of developing technology, but I have very little respect for those that do not have the vision to apply it to change things for the better in the world in which we live. Coming up today, we'll be hearing from Jen Hyatt, the founder of True.ai, a venture putting purpose at the heart of the conversation by using artificial intelligence and chatbots as a tool to help with mental health and well-being in teenagers, amongst others. But first in the studio, and joining me to talk about the wonder and the ethics of artificial intelligence, is Sharif El Saeed Ali, Director of Global Issues and Research at Amnesty International. Sharif, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Adam. So, firstly, for people listening, I'd like to take a little step back and really kind of understand how did you get to this point? So what's your background? Why are you interested in the, the ethics of artificial intelligence? For me, I guess, you know, I was, I mean, I grew up with sci-fi, you know, I loved science fiction. I read uh, too many Marvel books, probably. Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Trek, definitely. Um, Although, maybe we'll talk about the latest series at some point, some some issues there. (laughs) You know, so I love science, I love technology. Um, I grew up in in Egypt. Uh, I'm from Egypt originally. Uh, You know, my plan was to become an aerospace engineer. I kind of went to university hoping to do that study. You still can. I, Elon I, Musk. 
Absolutely. And that, that rocket was absolutely amazing. It was the most exciting thing ever. But you may have guessed that Egypt doesn't have much of a space industry. So yeah. it wasn't the easiest thing. Things sort of, uh, I essentially fell into human rights almost by accident. And when I graduated from engineering, I straight away started doing a master's in human rights. And at the same time, we had, you know, the, the crisis in Darfur was starting in Sudan, the war. There was lots more refugees coming from Sudan and the UN was hiring people to help assess asylum claims, talk to refugees. And I applied for a job. They were looking for young graduates. I got the job. I ended up working on refugees. I've been working on human rights ever since. So how did you then start to move further into the understanding about technology? So, you know, for, for a long time, I looked at technology as gadgets, you know, the cool stuff, things that, you know, I love technology. It's great. There's some great things you can do with it. And sort of didn't think much of it beyond that. And I think the point at which I started thinking, no, it's also a social issue. It's also a moral issue was in 2011 when we had the uprising in Egypt. And uh, the, the thing that happened then is that in the first few days, there was a point where there was quite a lot of violence on the streets, uh, you know, the police attacking people, people attacking uh, police stations. And then for there were these kind of 24 to 48 hours when the authorities in Egypt uh, shut down all communications. So there was no internet and there were no phones. And I was here in London just watching the news about violence, you know, looting, um, all of that, without being able to contact my family. Yeah. And that was very, very scary. Yeah, and I imagine a sense of helplessness. Absolutely. And it's just kind of the sense that this thing that you just take for granted, this technology that you take for granted can just be taken away by the government, was the first time where I started thinking, you know, technology is not just gadgets. It's also a part of a, the social fabric and it's part of and as such, is something that, that we have to think of in terms of, of human rights, in terms of morality. So, yeah, so at the time, you know, I was, uh, most of my work uh, at Amnesty International, that's where I was, was around refugees as well. Yeah. I've done work on, on a few other things at the same time. But it's really when Edward Snowden came out with his revelations. And at the time, if you remember, in 2013, it was almost every day you'd wake up with a new massive revelation about this, you know, kind of dystopian uh, surveillance program. And that, that was a big wake-up call for mm -hmm. us, you know, at Amnesty. And we, we, you know, and for me, it was just really the point where we we're kind of thinking, you know, we need to do something about that and we need to take this issue much more seriously as, as a major human rights question. And, you know, we knew we were, we were a bit late to the game. You know, it was something, kind of realizing that th these were probably issues that we had to look at 10 years before. But it was better to be late than never, obviously. Exactly. And so, you know, as we move on to this conversation around the ethics of AI, artificial intelligence, we hear and we see and we read all these kind of articles around AI, but it's such a big term. And I think there's so many things that come under the concept and the idea of artificial intelligence. Do you mind just kind of giving us your version of what that means? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think of AI as automated systems, really, or systems that are capable of making automated inferences about trends or about patterns and capable of making predictions or decisions that are not pre-programmed or don't follow a hard-coded program. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, AI as a term is used so much these days that that's almost becoming meaningless, almost like any piece of software now is AI. Yeah. And you can't have a business if you don't say AI somewhere. So why do you think everybody should understand what AI is? It is an incredibly transformative technology. And that's not to say that it's going to change the world for the better or solve every single problem 
we have. But, you know, and, and the reason, we, you know, I started looking and working on AI is that because kind of seeing that potential and that this is one of the, going to be one of the major technologies of the 21st century and one that's going to change a lot of things around us and in society and in business and in government. And because of that, because of that impact, whether it's positive or negative, we need to understand it. We need to understand the pitfalls and we need to do our best to, to minimize the, the risks that come with it. And so how did those initial conversations with Amnesty International happen? So, you know, we started off when we started looking at technology and human rights properly. We were working on, you know, looking at surveillance, mass surveillance and targeting of like civil society. But that realization that we were late, we thought, OK, there's more happening. There's a lot more that, that's coming up and we need to be ahead of the game. We need to, you know, be more proactive in trying to come in early and look at the risks rather than five or 10 years and say, well, we should have done this before. And this is where we, we you know, we started putting a lot of effort into AI mm -hmm. in sort of 2016, 2017 and, and continuing now. So what are your biggest concerns around human rights and AI? I think my, my biggest current concern is the risk of bias, the risk of discrimination uh, in AI. And the problem there is that you know, often we think of technology as, a, as this neutral thing or as this thing that's objective. And to an extent, yes, technology can be neutral in the sense that it can be used in good or bad ways, but it's not necessarily objectives it, it, because it's made by humans. Yeah, which I we, think sometimes we, we forget or people forget. Absolutely. You know, you see a piece of machine, you see a computer, and I think this is just, yeah. you know, yeah. At the end of the day, AI, and especially the kinds of AI that's been fueling this recent um, sort of acceleration technology, uh, machine learning, is very much relying on very large amounts of data. And the data that goes into the, this AI to make it work is data that's collected by humans, yep. put together by humans. And if we are biased, if we if we have our, our biases in this in this data and how the data is collected and, and what it represents, then this will just teach the yeah. AI. So it will just learn from the bad from the bad data. Absolutely. So could you give us any examples of where you've seen that happening? So, um, so some of the examples that we've seen, and there's been, you know, still few sort of uh, good investigations into this, but some of them, for example, have come from the US from uh, looking at the use of predictive policing, predictive algorithms in the criminal justice systems. And essentially, these are things that uh, software that's used to determine where crime might be happening. Uh, so to supposedly help police forces better use their resources or to determine whether someone should get uh, parole or not. And so, for example, there's been this uh, investigation by ProPublica, an investigative organization in the USA looking at uh, AI in the criminal justice system and found that there, there is this bias against uh, black people in the US yeah. because of essentially this is the data that's being fed into the, the, the AI. And one of the biggest problems with using AI in, in these essential government functions is that a lot of the time governments are buying the software from companies who aren't even transparent about yeah. how, how the software is being developed. And they have their own vested interest. So it's almost as though it's the minority report kind of coming to life. It's quite scary. It, it is, you know, and the thing is with, with sci-fi is that we, we imagine things in certain ways that, yeah. that kind of are quite physical. So we have the, in minority reports, it was those three siblings with mutations that allow them to predict the future. And, you know, in Terminator, it was the this kind of humanoid killer robot. Yeah. But at the same time, today, we have these drones that have been used, remotely operated drones, killing combatants and many civilians as well for years. And it's only a very few steps to go from these drones being remotely operated 
to having these drones being completely autonomous and killing people. Moving on a little bit, could you give me some examples of some of the things that you are currently working on at Amnesty International? So, yeah, I've talked about the issue of bias and discrimination in AI, and that, that's something that we're spending a lot of time on because that's a very clear and present problem yep. with some of the uh, generally, not just AI as such, but, but generally uh, kind of software applications that are being used across financial services, health insurance, policing, and others. We're looking at the use of autonomous weapons, both in uh, warfare, but also potentially the, the potential use in policing, and the impact of automation on the workforce. Okay. So, um, you know, as, as well as looking at as potential negative impacts of AI, we're also looking at, at it as a tool that could be really, really powerful for documenting human rights abuses, for uh, analyzing them. And uh, so we've been experimenting with a few things. Uh, one of them is something we did over the last summer. So we um, ran a hackathon and then worked with a data scientist to look at how we can detect and analyze online abuse against women on social media. Okay. Um, and so that our first pilot was looking specifically at uh, abuse against women MPs in, in the UK. And so what we did is that we, you know, we trained this algorithm using machine learning and specifically for the UK political context and looked at, analyzed about a million tweets uh, sent between the 1st of January 2017 and the uh, uh, general election in, in June to all women MPs. And we were able to get numbers, you know, and to say who were the most abused MPs, uh, which political parties they were. And, and the findings were quite fascinating in a shocking way. Yeah. But just to, to, for example, is that we found that Dan Abbott uh, received yes. nearly half of all abuse during that period, which was quite, you know, really shocking. Yeah. But also, I think, enabled a conversation about this is a real issue, you know, because before it was just, it's all, we know that there's a big problem of abuse, but just kind of having that in, in stark contrast, I think really brings it home. Uh, but also that abuse was really affecting MPs of all political parties. So it wasn't just one party, it was everyone. So th that was very promising. And what we're working on this year is kind of developing a much more sophisticated version of okay. that. Uh, what we'd like to see at the end of it is that having something where you, essentially you'd have the ability to see how abuse is changing over time, how, you know, whether it's increasing, where it's coming from, who it's targeting, uh, how it's reacting to, for example, big headlines in the news and so on. And, you know, looking at women in the public sphere, looking at abuse against refugees and migrants and so on. So thanks, Sharif. I mean, that was fascinating, you know, start to this podcast. Um, and what I would like to do now is to shine the light on another brilliant AI project, one that's previously been funded by Nominate Trust. This particular company is interested in the use of something called conversational AI. Now, we might be familiar with things like chatbots, Siri, Amazon's Alexa, but how can we make sure that these sorts of conversations are not just transactional? How can we add real meaning to these conversations? Well, now let's meet Jen Hyatt, the founder of a company called True.ai. Hello, my name is Jen Hyatt. I'm a serial social entrepreneur. During the course of the last three decades, I've established a whole range of social purpose organizations, everything from a grant-making organization in the Balkans through to advisory services and educational programs for people in various parts of the world. The story of True began following the last venture I did, which was called Big White Wall, which was a peer-facilitated uh, online space for people experiencing poor mental health. 
And True's journey began with really wanting to do something for teenagers and noting that young people get a pretty rough deal in life in many respects and find it quite difficult to find places to go and really deal with the issues that they're facing. And as we know, social media has been both a positive and negative in those respects. So True started as a prototype for teens, was co-created with teenagers, and co-creation is a fundamental principle of all of the work that I'm involved in. And what teens wanted was a conversational chatbot uh, where they could talk about the issues that they face. We launched it through an Instagram campaign, deliberately using Instagram because that has such a mixed reputation in terms of the overall health and well-being of young people. And we got a phenomenal response. We had a thousand young people engaging with it over a three-day period. Uh, they had on average 52.8 interactions and 78% of them said they found it very or fairly helpful in managing stress. On the back of that, we developed a, another 60-odd topics that they were interested in that they could then engage with. So, for example, a young person who would come into the app, they would engage in a, a gamified experience that would lead to them describing their mood and then asking them what lay underneath that mood. Then getting them to do a self-assessment on a stress scale um, where they felt they'd lie between zero and 40 and then offering them up actually a, a conversational form of the perceived stress scale and say, hey, you know, uh, you thought your stress level was 24, actually it's nearer 30. Um, and then being able to offer them different kinds of techniques or tips or even routes out, uh, depending on the kind of support they needed. But from there they could go anywhere. They could talk about underlying reasons for their stress, exams at school, what's happening uh, in their friendship network. One girl who stays with me who's lost her mum, whose mum had died and who was finding that she had nobody to really talk to about her mum anymore or a space to talk. And as we know, this builds on a lot of the research that now shows that people generally are much more open when talking to a digital... I'm not fond of the word chatbots, actually, but talking to a digital voice rather than a, a human being. Uh, that might be a sad view of, of contemporary contemporary life, but I feel that as so long as the technology itself is improving human experience, then the technology is worthwhile. So what we really grew through that and continue to grow is what we call True Core. True Core itself is a combination of content and algorithms uh, based on natural language processing, NLP, that enable people to uh, engage with content and find ways through content that they find, find useful. At the moment, True is text-based, but that will also become the ability to talk with True, particularly, for example, for people who are not able to, to text or who prefer actually having a voice to engage with rather than through a text. That might also apply to older people to overcome issues like loneliness. The true purpose of True.ai is perfecting conversational AI for human benefit. So all of the applications uh, that we have now are for human benefit. We use AI in a very particular way. There's an awful lot of hype around the use of the words artificial intelligence, a lot of smoke and mirrors, to be really honest. I've researched some of the 25 top AI conversational uh, spaces, and a lot of them really don't do much more than improve a customer service or supposed to improve a customer service experience, but do little to replicate beyond what I would call transactional. True is focused on something else. Our A is not about artificial. 
It is about augmented. It is about improving the human experience and adding to the human experience through technology. And it's authentic in the sense that authenticity is about having the ownership of something. And the ownership of the journey remains for us always with the person that uses it and should be based and created around that experience. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to Our Lives Plus Tech from Nominate Trust. And thanks there to Jen Hyatt from True.ai, a Nominate Trust-funded project. And we should also mention that True have a number of other active projects, including some work they're doing with a major telecoms company aimed at improving the work-study work-life balance for young people. They're working with King's College London, applying their model in the field of mental health, alcohol and substance treatment. They've been working with Rush University Medical Centre in Chicago to help survivors of post-traumatic stress disorder. And this one I find fascinating. They're actually doing a lot of work with a wheelchair manufacturer to embed conversational AI into wheelchairs to augment and to help the experience of the users. So, Sharif, what were your thoughts on some of what Jen was saying, especially around the idea of rather than saying artificial intelligence, augmented intelligence? No, I think it's, you know, she touched on some fascinating points. And it, it's about this this relationship between people and technology and this interaction. And the point I think that she was making that's really important is that unless it's useful, unless it adds something to the human experience, then why is it there? Exactly. And of course, you know, okay, sure, you can have uh, an AI system that gets gives you more relevant ads when you're on Facebook or something. But, you know, how much is that adding to the human experience? I'd, I'd argue probably not very much. We have things that are harmful. We have things that are not particularly useful, but aren't that harmful either. And then we have things that do add to our prosperity to make things better for people. And these are the things that you know, I believe we need to put the most effort into. And I think it's not just for nonprofits or mm-hmm. social enterprises to do, but for-profit companies who increasingly are talking about values yeah. should be putting more of their time, more of their money into developing systems, whether AI systems or otherwise, that are have a real benefit to people, a real, real benefit to society. So would you ha- do you have any advice to for our listeners in how they can start to have some of those conversations? Because for you, you were already at Amnesty International, who deals with human rights. That's the, you know, that's at the heart of what they do. Is there any tips or advice or resources you can point them to to say this is how you start to have that conversation? I would say, um, you know, one really important thing to do is ask the question, ask the question from, you know, if, if you're using a product, if you're using a service from a company, if something doesn't seem right, doesn't look right, then ask, why is this happening? And just to give an example, for a very long time, Facebook, for example, was arguing that it's a, it's a conduit 
for information that it was neutral. And I think it took this huge debate around the US presidential elections, around fake news, around the kind of fake paid advertisement, all of that yeah. for the company to start saying, okay, you know, we need to take this seriously. And I think it's without that, that sort of the public saying, look, you need to take technology, you need to look at the impact of technology. Yeah. I think both whether it's companies or governments that, you know, will not will not take it seriously. And I think some of those conversations are about moving people from being reactionary to being proactive in actually, you know, as you said at the beginning, Amnesty realised that they were late into the conversation. This is maybe a way of helping to move people forward so that they can start to make those changes within that organisation. And on that point, I'd like to bring Jen Hyatt back in now as she's left us with a particular plea. I think my most powerful ask of the AI industry as a whole is not to create in the absence of people. I know the seduction of engaging with technology and seeing what you can do with deep learning and neural networks and the kind of the black box and the magic. Yet there is so much that needs to happen in this world to ensure that we continue to live in it, (laughs) even as augmented individuals. And my vision is very much that we will live as augmented individuals, that we will evolve. But it has to be done on the basis of co-creating with the people for whom technology serves a purpose. If data is the new currency, then let it be a democratic currency and not assimilate as has monetary wealth with just a few individuals in the world. So, Sharif, just picking up on that point, data as democratic currency, how does that resonate with you? Well, I'd say that, I mean, it, 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 it has to be democratic, it has to be diverse. And that's a really serious problem in, in a lot of tech development is that, you know, whether it's for historical reasons or others, but it, it tends to be not particularly diverse. And when you're talking about very powerful systems, AI systems and others that are owned and controlled by a handful of companies around the world, then becomes extremely important that, that, that the people developing these systems are diverse in terms of their outlook, their you know their ethnicity, their where they come from, their beliefs, because otherwise it'd become a very, um, you know, we have these systems that are just coming from a very particular point of view. Or well, we start to create these echo chambers, you know, information and people and things that are happening that just repeat themselves. Absolutely. And, and you know, we have we have so many examples of tech experiments that sounded amazing on paper and really cool stuff that, that just didn't go very well because, you know, you didn't have the right people probably thinking about the potential and the risks. And, uh, you know, it's not enough. Of course, you know, if you're talking about AI, then you need it's it's made by AI scientists, by people who are expert in these things. But you also need the people who understands the use cases. You know, if you're applying AI to to health, you need the health professionals. If you're applying it to something that that's going to be in a city, you, you need city planners and, and ethicists and people who look at uh, social interactions. Because without that, you end up creating systems that don't really necessarily work in the context it's supposed to and could end up creating more problems than solving solutions. So how do you even start to make the systems accountable? Because is it the accountability is with the data or with the, you know, and who's responsible for that? Or is it with the organizations that use the data? Where do you think you start? I think the accountability is across the board. It's like from beginning to end, and it has to be. But I think, you know, we have a huge opportunity with AI because it's so much in the news, because people are really paying attention now. 
to look at things that we haven't dealt well with as societies over the next 10 or 20 over the last 10 20 years so to look at data ownership and data privacy and data control um so you know we've sort of been found ourselves in a situation where we have no idea what our, our data is where who's using it for what or how many hundreds or thousands of organizations are able to access it and that's not right yeah and that needs to be reversed and but AI allows us to, you know, I think the debate on AI allows us to have these conversations that we haven't had properly, as well as to look at, okay, you know, if you are developing a system as a company, then you're responsible for how this system is is being developed, that it's as objective as possible, that you check in the data, that you are consulting with the right people. And then, again, that you, you are able to monitor how it's working. And if something goes wrong, you're correcting that. And if you're an institution, whether a private institution or a government institution that's purchasing a system, yep. you need to ask the right questions. And have the right, the right people within the organization to know to ask the right questions. Absolutely. And that's not always the case. And it, no. Yeah, no. And so what do you think about, do you think that there needs to be some legislation in the way that data is collected and used because we have all of this historical data that is being used and put into these systems. We're, I think that we're at an opportunity now where more data is being produced. Do you think there needs to be some legislation now that will help us in the future going forward? So I think, uh, you know, something that's a very positive development is the adoption of the General Data Protection Regulation in yep. the EU, the GDPR, uh, because it's... Could you just explain what that is? So, yeah, so it's the new EU data protection law, essentially. Um, so, you know, there was an existing one beforehand, but it was adopted in the late 90s. This one is essentially really kind of updating that and bringing that to the technology that we have today. And what it does is give people a lot more control over their data yep. uh, than before, which is a great development. Yes. Um, and that's a really good start. And I think what we need beyond, obviously it only applies in, in the EU, but what we need beyond that is really looking at the governance and transparency of AI systems. So, for example, the black box problem is that uh, it's this idea that you can have an AI system that's a black box for one of two reasons, either, either because it was produced in a proprietary way, so the, the, the code is secret and you can't examine it, or because it's using um, deep learning, which is kind of a, the more advanced form of machine learning, which by its nature has features of a black box, so even the developers cannot necessarily explain how it's working. And, you know, it might be okay in some applications, but in certain applications, for example, if you're using it in, uh, in delivering public services, it might not be suitable. And we need legislations around these issues, we need regulations around when is it suitable and when is it not suitable to use uh, some systems and what kind of safeguards you need to have in place. And actually, as we're coming to the close of this podcast, that leads quite nicely into one of my questions for you. Are there any times when you think we should not use artificial intelligence? Well, I think we shouldn't put AI anywhere near weapons, uh, for sure. I mean, the idea of having an autonomous uh, artificial system deciding who lives and who dies is absolutely terrifying. And if, if we sort of get past that threshold, then we it becomes very, very, very difficult. You know, I think th there's a very important question to ask about what robots should look like, whether they should look human or not. Yeah. You know, where it becomes very dangerous, I think, is that if if we are in a situation where we don't know if you if you speak to someone on the phone, whether it's actually a person yeah. or uh, a machine, or if you 
perhaps not today, but in 20 years time, you might be, you know, uh, talking to someone in, 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 in a shop and you don't know whether they're a human or not. That's quite scary. That's dangerous. And so to conclude this podcast, what's your ideal view of the future of AI? Yeah, I think AI is, is an amazing technology and has incredible potential. As with you know, any strong technology, any powerful technology has risks that we need to manage and we need to be very cognizant of. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if we manage to do that, if we manage to control these risks and build strong safeguards around AI development, we can have huge benefits. And and you know what I'd like to see is AI not as something that threatens humanity or kind of is there to compete with people, but something that's there to augment people's capabilities, what they can do, what they can aspire to, and makes, essentially, just at the end of the day, makes our lives better, makes our planet better, helps protect the environment, uh, discover new uh, cures for diseases, you know, new treatments, uh, have better crop yields. That That's what I would like to see. And so maybe we, rather than keep referring to it as artificial intelligence, we do start talking about augmented intelligence. And that's what artificial intelligence should be. Yeah. Well, Sharif, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm sure we could have carried on for hours. Um, where can we find out more about your work and Amnesty Internationals? So we're, uh, you can find us at uh, amnesty.org. You can also find us on Medium if you search for Amnesty Insights. And on Twitter, I'm on Sharif EA. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. So thanks again to Sharif, and also I'd like to thank Jen Hyatt from True.ai. What an amazing company. Um, You can follow her on Twitter at Jen underscore Hyatt or www.troo.ai, True.ai. And to explore other global projects transforming lives with tech, like those featured in this podcast, head to Nominate Trust's website, that's nominatetrust.org.uk. There you'll find more on NT100 campaigns, including our new report, Transforming Lives with Tech, a global conversation, sharing insights from five years of NT100 projects and emerging social tech trends for 2018. Please do let us know what you think of this podcast. Hit subscribe, leave us with a review and get in touch on Twitter at Nominate Trust. We'll be back in two weeks' time. But until then, from me, Ada Paris, goodbye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.